Open with, with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. To finish 1 Samuel 16 here tonight. We'll be picking it up in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. You'll remember that David, young David, has just been anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. Saul is still the sitting king, but Saul, his heart has hardened. He has departed from the Lord, really, in relationship, and God has now rejected him as continuing to reign over his nation, and he has selected David, a man after his own heart. He has sent Samuel to go and select David as from the sons of Jesse. And you remember he looked at all the sons, but it was the youngest David who was out tending the sheep that the Lord had selected. David has been anointed. Saul has gone back to his home, but nothing has changed. David has been anointed as the new king, but he's still just a young man and continues to tend sheep. And Saul continues to sit and reign as the existing king. So God clearly is going to have to move and to orchestrate the transition from moving Saul, removing Saul and installing David. And we'll see even now that the Lord, in this next passage that we'll look at here tonight, the Lord begins this process. It's going to be a process. It's not going to happen instantly. But God is sovereignly now beginning to bring about his plan. David has been chosen. David has been anointed. But there is a process in which God works to actually fulfill that calling and that purpose in David's life. Look with me now in verse 14 of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now let's just stop there for a moment. I want to spend a little time on this verse because it is... Um, it's an interesting verse. In fact, it's somewhat of a debated verse, this idea that the spirit of the Lord would leave Saul and then a distressing spirit from the Lord would begin to trouble him. Let's talk about the spirit of the Lord departing from Saul. In the Old Testament, uh, the relationship with the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit had with individuals is that he would come upon certain individuals uh, for certain tasks and certain ministries that they were called. Um, so the Holy Spirit did not reside on all uh, of God's people, but rather the Holy Spirit would come upon individuals for specific times, specific tasks. Uh, we saw just earlier in, in verse 13 of the same chapter that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So David now has this ministry of the Holy Spirit upon his life, and of course, he's, it's to enable him to become the next king and ruler of, of God's people. But the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, had once been upon Saul and anointed him to rule over God's people, but now we see that the Spirit has departed. And this is a, really kind of a the outcome of Saul's hardening his heart against the Lord, Saul's pr- pride, uh, in First Samuel 15, you don't need to look back, but you remember Samuel told Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord. You've rejected the Lord and therefore he has rejected you. And this hardening and this resisting in Saul's own heart and rejecting the word of the Lord eventually results in the Lord's departure from his life. 
You know, Ezekiel saw a vision of the Lord's glory departing from the temple. And it was something of a judgment on the nation when they were rebelling and and living against God that God just withdrew His glory from the temple. God no longer dwelt with His people who rebelled and rejected and hardened their hearts against Him. And this is what's going on in Saul's life. Uh, Saul is resisting God. Saul is pushing God away. Saul is resisting the Holy Spirit. Saul is hardening his own heart, doing his own thing, rising up in his own pride. And so now the Holy Spirit simply departs. It's really what Saul desired and God now giving, giving Saul over to the very uh, departure of the Holy Spirit. But it also says that a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And this is a difficult passage. What kind of troubling spirit came upon Saul? It says it was from the Lord. Does the Lord have evil spirits that he also sends to do his bidding? Well, we don't believe that. We believe that God, uh, there there is nothing evil or troubling in God. However, uh, we do believe that God allows even demonic spirits, even demonic forces to work in people's lives, especially when he removes his protection. You may remember Job. Satan came and had to ask permission to come and give trial to Job's life. Now, and, and God allowed that for the trying and for the perfecting of Job's faith and life. But this is not God allowing this to happen to give Saul a trial to, to strengthen his faith. But rather, this is the enemy taking advantage of Saul because God has removed his spirit and hand of protection over Saul's life. And I believe an evil spirit was permitted by the Lord to trouble him. And this creates, you know, um, some kind of a distressing amongst Saul. In fact, we'll see here that even his servants notice that was some kind of uh, countenance change. Maybe he became, you know, violent. He may have become just mad. Some kind of a reaction to this troubling and distressing spirit. Saul is really kind of, uh, as he's, God removes his protection, Saul is really spiraling down. And what we're going to see is that God is going to allow some relief to Saul through the ministry of David and the power of David's worship music and playing. But before we look look on, I want to talk a little bit about the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We're talking about this dynamic of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant. Saul and David, they lived under the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out upon all flesh, all believers, all of God's people. But in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we have a different relationship with the Holy Spirit than what we see in the Old Testament. Now, for, the, for unbelievers, those that do not know the Lord, the Holy Spirit's role is to convict them of sin. The Holy Spirit is looking to draw men to Christ. He's looking to bring them to an understanding that they need a Savior. He can be rejected and hardened, and, and uh, many resist, unbelievers, they resist that drawing, that 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 stirring of the Holy Spirit trying to bring them to Christ. 
But that is the role of the Holy Spirit primarily in unbelievers. He is trying to draw and convict the world, bring them to the Savior. But in the life of the believer, the Holy Spirit comes upon us uh, at the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. At the moment of conversion, Jesus would call it, we, we are born again, born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates us from within. We are spiritually alive now because of this work of the Holy Spirit. And this will reside with us for our entire life. The Holy Spirit never leaves, never departs a New Testament believer. Now, I'm not talking about just a professing believer, but a true Christian, a true surrendered heart that has come to Christ in faith and made Jesus the Lord of their life. The Holy Spirit now resides with them and his his residence is permanent, not like Saul, not coming upon and departing. But the Holy Spirit in the life of true believers is ever present. I'm going to have you turn to a couple passages with me. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the New Testament believer. And Romans chapter 8 gives us quite a description on how the Holy Spirit interacts with us as believers. I won't have any verses for you on the overhead tonight, but... It's good to hear the pages of your Bibles turning. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, of course, we'll be back to 1 Samuel. Hold your place. But Romans 8, picking it up with me now in verse 9, kind of in the middle of the chapter, but this is where the Apostle Paul really begins to identify some of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He is not his. So to belong to Jesus, to be a Christian, is to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Verse 10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba, meaning an endearing term for father, daddy, Abba, father, a very warm embrace. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So in these few verses, you see just the dynamic of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He's not just kind of around us or near us. He is within us. He has become a part of our new nature. He is the one that has caused us to become alive spiritually. In verse 9, Paul says that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So He is living in you. In verse 10, it says that He gives spiritual life. Without the Holy Spirit, you're spiritually dead. 
But with the Holy Spirit, you become alive spiritually. Verse 11 tells us that He will give life to our mortal bodies. The same Spirit that raised Jesus will one day raise us. The Holy Spirit is our assurance of resurrection. Because that's the Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. He lives in us. He can never die. Though we may die, the Spirit will raise us as well. We will enjoy resurrection as a result of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, Paul says that the Holy Spirit helps us to put to death the deeds of the body. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us victory over sin. The deeds of the body, the lusts of the flesh, the desires of our sinful nature, it is the Holy Spirit that puts those to death in us and gives us victory over sin, allowing us to live the Christian life. Verse 14, He leads us. Those that are led by the Spirit are the children of God. That means the Holy Spirit is actively involved in guiding us directing our steps, speaking direction, wisdom into our heart, revealing Scripture as we read it. He illuminates it. The Holy Spirit is very active in our lives, and He leads and directs us, providing guidance. Verse 15, He says that the Holy Spirit from within us cries out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit actually enhances our devotion and worship life to the Lord. Jesus said that God is looking for worshipers that will worship Him how? In spirit and in truth. It is a a worship that is actually enabled by the Holy Spirit within us that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, God, You're my Lord, You're my King. The worship actually is enhanced by the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, He says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It's the, it's the assurance that you belong to God. The reason you know that you're His child is because the Holy Spirit has bore witness in your heart. The Holy Spirit has confirmed that, that you indeed are born again, that you do belong to Him. This is the, the beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament believer. This was, is unique to the New Covenant. The Old Testament believers did not enjoy this relationship at this level with the Spirit of God. Ephesians, if you'll turn there with me, chapter 1. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. Ephesians 1, 13. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's saying, look, when you believed in Jesus, you heard the gospel, you trusted in Him, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. A little more insight on, the, on how the Holy Spirit relates in your life as a Christian. At the moment you became a believer in Christ, you heard the gospel, you believed it, you received it as true, then the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, sealed you. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God put His mark on you. 
God put his seal of ownership upon you. And the seal is the Holy Spirit. He sealed you with his spirit to say, you're now mine. You're my possession. I mark you. I'm putting my, you know, my, my tattoo on you, if you will. I'm putting my seal on you. You belong to me. This is your identification. The Holy Spirit now living within your life. And not only has he sealed us, but he has also become the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit, you, you might look at it this, you might think of him this way, something of a down payment of the future glories to come. You know, uh, John tells us it does not yet appear uh, what we shall be. We don't yet see the full revelation of what God has for us in eternity future. But the Holy Spirit is something of a foretaste. We know that it's going to be good. We know that God has something glorious planned for us on into eternity. And the evidence of that is that the Holy Spirit has already kind of taken up residence in my life. And His Spirit has changed me from the inside. His Spirit has begun to transform me. I already see the impact, the effect of God in my life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this is something of a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until God finally returns and Christ comes for His church. Until then, you have a promise from God that He's coming and that guarantee, that promise, is the Holy Spirit who lives and resides in your life. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never depart the life of true believers. The Holy Spirit is with us always and forever. Now, He also empowers believers for ministry. This is another dynamic. Not only does He work, live within us and assure us of our salvation and begin to transform us, give us victory over sin, but He is also the one who gives us the ability to serve God in ministry, to be witnesses for Jesus. You don't need to turn. Let me just read this to you because it's pretty quick. I'll read Acts 1. You turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'll meet you there. But talking about this empowering believers for ministry, Jesus said to his disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this is another dynamic of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. He dwells within and transforms us from within, but He also comes upon and empowers us for ministry. And the Jesus said, this power is going to enable you to be a witness for me. You're going to be able to, to speak of Jesus. You're going to be able to minister in the world here in Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is going to uh, kind of enable you for ministry. So you can't do ministry without the Holy Spirit. We need His enabling power. Now, the Holy Spirit does not depart the believer. The Holy Spirit does not leave or abandon the believer. However, the believer can quench the Holy Spirit. We can, through our own choices or our own 
not giving place to the Spirit, but giving place to the flesh, we can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not as if the Holy Spirit just automatically takes over everything. We have to cooperate. We have to surrender. We have to learn to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to be directed by the Spirit. It's a process. It's a lifelong learning to walk in the Spirit. So you're there in 1 Thessalonians, verse chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look with me at verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So Paul, talking to the Thessalonians, says, listen, in your Christian walk, the Holy Spirit, He's with you. He's in you. He's empowering you for, for ministry. But be careful not to quench the Spirit. Right? That's kind of like putting out a fire. Right? Be careful not to diminish the Holy Spirit's um, activity in your life. You can kind of you know, turn His volume down. You can quench Him. And notice what He says. How, do we, how is it that we would not quench the Holy Spirit? Well... In the context here, rejoice, pray, give thanks, be op- give place to prophecies, spiritual gifts, don't despise them, test and hold fast to things that are good, and abstain from evil. So in the context, these are the things that keep the Holy Spirit active in your life. Praying, rejoicing, giving thanks, being open to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says don't despise prophecies, test them. You know, hold on to the good and abstain from evil. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't limit what the Holy Spirit desires to do in your life. And don't become so kind of, you know, joyless and prayerless that the Holy Spirit isn't allowed to really be active in your life. You can quench Him. He's not leaving, but you can certainly quench Him if you don't take care to your own spiritual life. Back to Ephesians now. Turn with me to chapter 4. And then we will get back to 1 Samuel, I promise. The last scripture I have here concerning the Holy Spirit in the life of the New Testament believer is the exhortation from the Apostle Paul not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We saw not to quench. We also see here not to grieve. Ephesians chapter 4. Looking at verse 29, Ephesians 4:29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So, again, the Holy Spirit is not leaving the life of the believer, but the Holy Spirit needs to be embraced and cooperated with in the life of the believer, lest you grieve Him. How, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, again, if we look at the context here of what Paul is saying, He gives us an idea of 
What grieves Him? Corrupt words. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. Instead, there ought to be kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So we can grieve the Holy Spirit by our words, by our conduct, by our attitude, by the way we treat one another. But we can also cooperate and walk in the Spirit when we're kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. The Holy Spirit is in us to produce the character of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to magnify Christ in your life, to transform you into the image of Jesus. Whenever you're acting like you instead of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is grieved. So the Holy Spirit needs a lot less of Richard and a lot more. He's, he's interested in creating a lot more of Jesus. Insert your own name. A lot less of you and a lot more of Jesus. That's the key to walking in the Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Okay, back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we'll finish out the chapter here tonight. That's such an interesting verse, the Holy Spirit departing and a troubling spirit coming that I, uh, upon Saul, that I wanted to spend a little time, and which we did, to talk about the Holy Spirit's dynamic in our lives. But verse 15, we'll pick it up here, and Saul is going to now call for someone to come and lead worship in the palace. Verse 15, And Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well, and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him. And he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Little does Saul know that David has been anointed to take his place. But God is at work. God is at work orchestrating his sovereign plan. David, who's been anointed king but gone back to tending sheep, now finds himself as the musician in the court of the king. And what I sense here is that it's something about David's worship life that brought a peace and calm to Saul's distressed spiritual life. David was a worshiper. 
You read the Psalms. Most of the Psalms, not all, but most and many are written by David. And they are written, most, many of them, to music. David was a skillful musician. David was a musician who played and sang worship to the Lord. He loved worshiping the Lord. He was expressive in his worship. He is the one that danced and twirled before the ark as they brought it in to the city of David, expressing his worship. And something about this worshipful heart and this musician that that came and played his worship in the king's presence actually had a spiritual impact on the king and his distressing spirit. And and I thought I would just kind of close here tonight with a few thoughts about worship. The power of worship. The power that we see uh, here, even in David's expression of worship. Saul would become refreshed and well. And the distressing spirit would depart. Almost as if this tormenting spirit could not stand to hear the worship and praise of God. He, he had to leave because the presence of God was ushered in to the presence of Saul because of David's music and worship. Now, there is something about music, isn't there? There is something, and I believe it's from the Lord. I believe that God has made music um, as a tool to help us really express our inner heart in worship and praise to God. Now, not all, not all music is worship music. Music has a ministry to our soul uh, just by the nature of music, not even worship music. And it can be used for good. It can also be used for evil. Music has a powerful connection with the human heart and the human soul. And it's something deep within, right? You can say things, but then when they are put to song, even the simplest words, when put to a melody... It, it just it moves us. We feel something within us. And I believe that God has fashioned us that way. I believe that God has given us music as a, an expression tool to help us communicate the deep longings of our heart to the Lord. Have you ever had that sense where you, you, you wanted to say and communicate something, but you just felt like words weren't enough? You know, you felt like you didn't even have the, the, the words to articulate what you really wanted to express. You know, it, can be a, it could be a love song for someone that you love. And, and, and that's why so many love songs are written, because it helps us really communicate in a, at a deeper level. And it's the music that gives us that gift. And, and so it is in worship. Those deep longings that we want to communicate to the Lord, the deep appreciation, the thanks, the, 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 just the awe, the reverence, the, the wonder of God. When it's put to music, it somehow gives life to those deep things within our heart. And I really think that's, that's part of, of the worship ministry. That's part of why we take the time to do music. It's not just our idea. We see this as the model throughout the scripture. Music was a, a powerful part of worship life in the Old Testament temple. When they dedicated the temple, you remember Solomon, all the priests, all the trumpets. It's when they began to sing and declare, uh, you know, the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. The glory cloud of the Lord descended into the temple. 
As if the Lord was saying, I, I endorse this moment as you sing and worship praise to me. I am there in your midst. God actually giving a visible revelation of that at the dedication. We see the, the Psalms, the largest book in the Bible. Just, you know, so many exhortations to sing, make melody, to play music to the Lord. Uh, we see it in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, make music and melody in your heart to the Lord. Sing spiritual songs. When you come together, let each one have a psalm, a hymn, a spiritual song. That when you join in fellowship, make sure you worship. Make sure you sing worship to the Lord. Don't just study. Yes, study. Yes, give time to the Word of God. But, but come and worship together in the presence of the Lord. There's something about the music there's something very powerful about worship. If we look into the future, into the heavenly scene, if you look at the book of Revelation, what is forecast yet to come, that you know, thousands upon thousands surrounding the throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb. They sang a new song. And all of heaven and all of heaven's hosts and all of the saints and all, you know, every tongue and every tribe will all be there worshiping God in music, singing to Jesus in song. So there is this powerful ministry that comes when we worship together. That's why I feel like it, it should be so valued in our, even in our personal life and especially in our congregational life. That you, would, that you would value that time to be refreshed just as Saul was. To be restored, to be, kind of have your spirit lifted. When you just kind of view it as the, the song portion of the of the service, you know, and, and, and you don't really like singing and, and it's really for some of the others, wow, she's really into it, he's really going for it, you know, but I'm just here kind of getting settled waiting for the service to begin. You're missing something. You're missing a time of refreshing. You're missing a time of really having your spirit lifted because there is a dynamic in worship that we see clearly here in the Scripture. David came and when he played... Saul was relieved. His, his spirit became refreshed and the distressing spirit departed. I believe there's something for us in, in worship as we engage, as we partake. We also see some qualifications here that were identified in David. And I just want to spend a few moments looking at that back at verse 18. You might call these the, the qualifications for a worship leader, but I would also say that some of these are qualifications for any type of ministry, you know, ministry uh, opportunity that someone might serve in. But look what's identified here in verse 18. One of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, first of all, who is skillful in playing. So to do ministry and worship, you need to be skillful in playing. But this would, this would go into any ministry application, that you, we would do it skillfully. You know, it's not just, well, you know, he really likes to sing, so just give him a mic. Don't do that. That's not a good idea. You know, you're going to be sorry. Well, but he has such a great heart, you know. Let him do this. Let her serve it. But if they're not skillful, if they don't know what they're doing, it's not going to be ministry at all. It's going to be misery. <laughs> 
skillful in playing. So, you know, it's good to practice. It's good to, again, we're talking about worship, but this, you know, this, this flows out into all ministry. Uh, to do it well, to do it skillfully, to be prepared, uh, you know, not to just kind of throw something together, whether you're teaching, whether you're leading worship, whether you're serving as an usher, whether you're ministering to the children, whether you're serving in hospitality, whether you're, you know, just your ministry in, in, out in your life at home and, and with your family in the workplace. Do it skillfully because it's unto the Lord. And, and, and so David is identified as a skillful player. And, and God gives unique gifts for different ministries. Some are skilled musicians and they can serve and now, it can't just be skillful in, in playing, and we'll see there's more to, to this, but that's certainly one of the attributes. And not all are skilled. Not all can sing as well on pitch. They can sing. They may be a great choir voice because they can sing with other voices around them, but maybe they're not a solo voice, right? So you do have to distinguish from different gifts. And just because somebody wants to serve in a certain ministry, oh, oh, I want to do that. Well, <laughs> Can you do that? You know, well, I, I want to. Well, but can you? So there's a certain skill, there's a certain gifting that God gives to help you plug into the right place that you should be serving. The second thing we notice is that he was a man of valor. That means a bravery and a man of war. David had an ability to fight. David was a warrior. Now, we're not, we're not starting a UFC ministry here, so we're not looking for physical warriors. But let me say this, that when you engage in ministry, when you step out to really serve the Lord, you are going to enter into a fight. You are going to be attacked by spiritual forces in high places. And I can assure you that the worship ministry definitely undergoes that. Worship is something that is precious to the Lord, and I believe that worship is something that is detested by the enemy. You know, many Bible teachers believe that Satan, uh, some of the scriptures that talk about Lucifer, his role before he fell, many see him as someone in some way engaged in the worship surrounding the throne of God. It talks about his timbrels and his pipes that were fashioned within him. Some see him as some kind of a musical being that helped maybe to amplify or in some way enhance the worship around God. And being around that worship that was coming to God, that's when his heart was lifted up. Oh, that I would sit on the, in, in the place of the Most High. He wanted that glory and was filled with pride. And so worship has a, a, a certain spiritual force that, all, that I think repels darkness. Remember Gideon? The battle was all led by worship. God used that worship and praise to confound the enemy. We see here with David uh, leading worship there in Saul's presence. It, the spirits, this evil spirit departed. So you will be buffeted. 
The worship ministry certainly can testify to that. There will be all kinds of divisions and attacks and, 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 and the enemy, you know, pride and, and, and all these things. And, and, but you will see this in any area of ministry. Once you put yourself on the radar, you're on the radar. And the enemy is going to look to discourage you, trip you up, get you from serving and growing and being fruitful. If you're just below the radar, just kind of living a Christian life, but not really bearing fruit for the kingdom, you're not much threat to the enemy and you don't get much attention, but you start getting your life plugged in in a way where God can use your life to bear fruit. And you better be a man or woman of valor, a man or woman of war. You better have the full armor of God on. You better be ready to do spiritual battle because it's coming. And there will be forces that will resist you. So we see here that David is identified as a man of valor and a man of war. It says next, thirdly, prudent in speech. This means that David was thoughtful and careful with his words. He did not speak just off the top of his head. He was careful with his words. So in other words, this would be a guy that could handle himself in the presence of the king. He's going to be diplomatic. He's going to be wise in the way that he speaks, in the way that he conducts himself. He's not going to be a loose cannon. We can't just turn that guy loose in the, in the court with, with, a, with a king who's got troubles, right? Who knows what David would say or do. So he's prudent in speech. And I, I, think that's a, I think that's a good quality for us to be useful in ministry, that our words would be prudent, thoughtful. Uh, and I think certainly in the worship ministry, um, the worship ministry is primarily, primarily a music ministry. It's not a teaching ministry. It's not the time for Bible study. It's the time to lead in worship. And so in various ministries, uh, your words are going to be important. In fact, in almost any walk of life, our words are so important. And so this quality of being prudent in speech, I believe, is a good ministry quality. It says that he was a handsome person. Oh, bummer. So many of us now are disqualified right there. Now, I will say this. I don't believe that handsome necessarily means, you know, GQ or fashion model, you know. But I would say this about ministry. I think there is something about just being mindful of your appearance. Um, you know, well-groomed, clean, uh, showered, preferably, you know, uh, you know, just not being a distraction to ministry, not dressing up and not dressing down, but, you know, dressing appropriately for whatever ministry opportunity the Lord may give to you. You, you kind of, especially in the worship ministry, you really want to try and be as invisible as you can. And so that means not, nothing about your appearance should be distracting or overdone or underdone, you know, like... In, doesn't even doesn't even comb his hair before he gets up on you know just there there are things that that we need to be mindful of 
Not that the outward appearance is what really determines what's in the heart, but I do believe that the right heart will care for the outward appearance, especially if you're going to be useful in ministry. You don't want to be a distraction. It's just a practical thing that you you need to be considerate of uh, when you're serving in ministry. Let's say you're serving in the children's ministry and you're going to be receiving children as parents drop them off. Don't you know parents are checking you out to see where their kids are, who their kids are going in there with, right? So there's a certain demeanor, a certain appearance. You want to be handsome as much as you can be handsome. You want to kind of, again, not, that's not the total focus, but there's some practical application there. And finally, and, and probably the most important, the quality of David is that the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. We can't do anything without the Lord. We can have all the skill. We can have all the, the handsomeness. But if we don't have the Lord, we're useless. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Abide in me and I my word in you and you will bear fruit. If you disconnect from the from the vine, you will you will be fruitless. And this Lord being with you, David had an abiding, close relationship with the Lord. David was called and equipped by the Lord. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And this is essential. You have to have a devotion life. You have to be walking close to the Lord. And then the grace of God has needs to be upon you. You can be very eager and zealous, but if, it, if the Lord isn't with you, you don't have the most important thing. You can be eager and zealous maybe to serve in the wrong area, and God has not given you the grace to do that ministry. So it's important to find that place that God has for you and allow Him to use your life. Just some closing thoughts here about David. Isn't it interesting? He's been anointed. He knows Samuel has come and prophesied, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And where do we find him when Saul calls for him? He's back tending sheep. I like that. David didn't go out and start getting fittings for a crown, right? He didn't start uh, imagining, man, I'm going to be the king. I can't, I can't mess with the sheep anymore. I'm going to be the king. We need to start getting me my royal attire You know, he just goes back to tending sheep. It's almost as if in David's heart, like, you know, I don't know how that's going to happen. Lord, I receive, I believe, but but you're going to have to do that. And until then, I'm just going to be faithful with what you've given me. I'm just going to keep doing what I know to do and allow you and trust you to to move me into the next steps uh, that you have for me. And, of course, that's exactly what God is doing. God is now bringing him into the court. He didn't stop everything. He didn't drop everything. He waited and allowed the Lord to open the door to show him the next step. But then he goes and he finds great favor in the royal court. Saul immediately is drawn to David, makes him his armor bearer, which is a a great trusted, privileged position. And what we find here now, we'll conclude here tonight, is that really God is setting the stage for the next steps, both in Saul's life and in David's life. 
So much more to come. Now we know the story, but, but think of David as it's unfolding for him. He was just the youngest in his family, out tending sheep. This prophet Samuel comes, pours oil on him, says you're going to be the next king. Okay, back to tending sheep. Now he finds himself leading worship music in the king's court and the, becoming the armor bearer. And this is going to be your full time. You're going to stay. You're going to be here now. Wow. And so much more yet to come. And David had no idea what was coming. David had no idea the plans that the Lord had. There would be trials, but there would be wonderful victories. There would be hard things and there would be great things. David has no clue what's coming, but God is ultimately bringing David's life into the fulfillment of all that he has prepared for him, even though in this moment, David can't even begin to see it. David would become the lineage of the Messiah himself. Jesus would be referred to as the son of David. And, you know, it just struck me that, Lord, here's this young man. You have this future and hope prepared for him. He doesn't even he can't even begin to fathom what you're going to do, what you have planned. And yet you're setting the stage and getting him ready. I think that that's I could say that in all of our lives as we sit here tonight. You don't know what God has planned for you, but I can tell you that it's good. I can tell you that 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 it's not thoughts of evil, that it's thoughts of hope and future. And, and, and right now you can't see it. Just as David, it was just like a blur to him. What's going on? But God knew and God was working and God was moving him toward the fullness and the blessing. Keep your heart on the Lord. Keep your faith in the Lord and keep your hope alive in the Lord. You may be long into the journey, but you don't know yet what God has planned. There are still more that God is going to do and wants to do. And you'll be surprised. Uh, You will be surprised, as Paul said, above and beyond all that we could ever ask or think. As God begins to unfold those chapters, walk with him, stay close to him, trust him, worship him, and allow him to accomplish the good things that he's planned for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for this This passage in Samuel that reminds us of the power of worship in our lives. And Lord, not just the worship and the ministry of worship, but Lord, just we we see your sovereign hand working in a young man's life. And Lord, I, I hope that that would encourage all of us tonight. That just as you had a plan and a purpose for David a ministry for David, you have for each of us here tonight. Lord, the Bible says that you have prepared good works for all of us to walk in. And Lord, that we would see that tonight, that we would, that we would catch vision for that tonight, that God in you is my future, in you is my hope and my destiny. If I will but trust you, if I will but surrender my heart and my life to you, if I but will allow the Holy Spirit to really lead and guide me, that I, can, that I will, by your sovereign hand, by your grace, not by my merit, not by my effort, but by your power, by your spirit, 
I can see all that you have prepared for me. And I pray, Lord, that it would all come to pass for your glory. That, Lord, our lives would reflect Jesus. That our lives would come into something that would glorify your great name. What higher cause is there tonight? What greater use of my life is there than than to have Jesus Christ glorified? Lord, speak to us tonight. Minister to each heart in a personal way tonight. And breathe hope and future and faith. As our heads are bowed here tonight, we close and we will close in a time of worship. But before we do, I do want to give an opportunity if you're here tonight and you need to respond to the Lord, I'd love to pray for you. Of course, I want to pray for anyone that is here tonight and you don't know the Lord in a personal way. I talked earlier about the Holy Spirit kind of drawing men to faith in Christ. And maybe you're here tonight and the Spirit is drawing you to Jesus, maybe for the first time, to surrender your life, to invite Him into your heart, to ask Him to forgive you of your sins, to thank Him for dying on the cross and raising from the dead. I'd love to pray for you if you want to receive Christ. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to rededicate your life to Christ. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you right now about the plans and purposes that He has for you. And you know in your heart that you're off track. You know that you're, you've taken a detour. And you're not in step with what you know God really is calling you to. And you just want to recommit to His path, to His love, to His devotion, to His grace. Recommitting your life to Him. I'd love to pray for you too. If you're here tonight, you want to receive Jesus for the very first time, or you want to rededicate, recommit your life, I'm asking you to raise your hand, let me see you, and I'll pray for you. God bless you. Be here up front. God bless you, sir, as well. Anyone else? Lord, speaking to you. Lord, ministering to your heart. Got a couple people that have responded. God bless you in the back as well. Amen. Amen. Just before I pray, anyone else? And so, Lord, for these hearts that are responding to you, I, I really believe that it is your spirit that is speaking to them. And I pray, God, that you would, just as we studied tonight, that that you would bear witness with their spirit tonight that they are the children of God. That they would simply come to you in honesty and sincerity, no games, no pretense, just saying, Jesus, I need you in my life. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. I thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe that you came and did that for me, that you love me. And that you rose from the dead to bring me hope and victory. And I'm asking you now not only to cleanse me, but to fill me with your spirit. And to bring my life into the alignment of your plan and purpose. I want to live for you, Lord. 
And I give it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.